notice we, the table is prepared for us this morning, and we also, uh, the cross is always here, but the communion table reminds us that we are invited to dine together with Christ as we are in preparation for serving him. And then the table also reveals God's love and strength that nourishes us as we feed on him. The cross eloquently reminds us of God's passionate concern for all of humanity. And it reveals God's love and that's as tangible as the wood and as extensive as all eternity. So I invite you this today to let these two very powerful symbols um, speak to you in whatever concerns may be on your heart as you come to worship today and know that you are loved by the God of the universe. Uh, join me in a moment of prayer, will you? Loving God, we gather today as people who long to be faithful and we confess that our longing comes more easily than do faithful actions sometimes. We sense your presence here within us and among us, but we acknowledge that sometimes it's difficult to see you at work in our world. This week again, we have seen too much violence and pain in our cities and in our world, and today we pray for peace. Help us to rely on your grace and your love to overcome evil and sin. Let our compassion reach out to those who have suffered so much loss in recent days. Let us not place our trust in humans or powers or governments or systems, but in your salvation and your uh, hope in the name of Jesus Christ. Strengthen us to live boldly and faithfully and to always bear witness to your grace in our lives, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So we're looking at the life story of Abraham in the Old Testament book of Genesis. Today we're in Genesis chapter 17, and we'll be talking, among other great points in this story, about the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham, and the sign was circumcision. But we'll also be talking about an, uh, another one of the names for God that we discover in this chapter, and it's El Shaddai. And each time we encounter one of these names for God in the Old Testament, it reveals to us a little bit more about God's character. So listen for that. If you um, uh, haven't been here for all of the series, just know that they're available to listen to on the podcast, on our website, or on our mobile app, and they're also available in print copy uh, out in the lobby area. J. Hudson Taylor, who was a British Protestant missionary to China back in the mid to late 1800s, said these words, he said, there are three stages in any great work attempted for God. Impossible, difficult, and done. Now I think most things in God's work get started in much the same way. When God wants to do something big, he often starts with something very small. When God wants to do the miraculous, he often starts with the impossible. After all, when God sent his son into the world, he didn't send him to New York or Chicago or Rome or London. He sent him to a little village called Bethlehem. God loves to start small because then he can show his power in a mighty way. And he's also the only one who gets the credit because most of us don't want the credit for small things, uh, small beginnings. We'd rather start big and go from there. Not so with our heavenly father. He starts with the impossible and then turns it into reality. That, of course, is the whole story of Abraham's life. Here is a man who God found living as a pagan 
in the Ur of the Chaldees. He's 75 years old. He has no children. God promises this old man that he would have so many descendants that they would be like the stars in the sky and the dust of the ground. No one would be able to count them all. Now, this was an incredible promise to make to an old man who could har- and who could hardly blame Abraham if he had a little trouble believing it. So God repeated the promise many times across the years. Each time he added a little bit more detail to it. First, it was fairly general. In Genesis 12, he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you or, and those who treat you with contempt. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you. But then God makes it a little bit more specific. He says in chapter 15, you will have a son uh, of your own who will be your heir. Then God adds promises concerning the nation itself. I'm giving you all this land as far as you can see to your descendants as a permanent possession. Finally, God cuts a covenant with Abraham in which he makes an unconditional promise to fulfill everything that he has promised. We talked a little bit about that last week. But now 24 years have passed, and Abraham is now 99 years old. He has no child except the son born to the slave uh, Hagar, his wife's maidservant. Surely God has forgotten his promise. Maybe God's changed his mind. But then just at the moment of despair, God comes into Abraham once again with even more details. And he says, your name will be called Abraham from here on out, father of many people. And many kings and nations will come from you. I will make an everlasting covenant with your descendants, and I will give you the whole land of Canaan to your descendants as well. How could Abraham believe such an amazing statement? The answer is by the name by which God introduces himself. God says, I am God Almighty. In Hebrew, El Shaddai. The phrase means something like, the God who moves mountains. It was God's way of saying, Abraham, what are you worried about? I can make a mountain and I can move a mountain. If I want to, I can give you a son when you're 100 years old. This is no problem for me. Down south, they have a saying for people who can do difficult things. They say, that's no hill for a stepper. Now, it means if you've got big feet, you can step right over the biggest obstacles as if they weren't even there. But the statement applies to anyone who does something difficult that other people won't even attempt. You think it's hard to have a baby when you're 100 years old and your wife is 90? Well, that's no hill for a stepper. You see, his name is El Shaddai, the God who moves mountains. He can do things that you and I can't even imagine, less, uh, much less attempt. But that's not the whole story. Once God gave this incredible promise, he told Abraham and the other men to do something special. He ordered them to be circumcised. Now in verse 11, God calls it the mark of the covenant. And he goes on to specify several conditions regarding circumcision. It was all male descendants were to be circumcised. It should take place on the eighth day after birth both natural-born descendants and foreign slaves were to be circumcised, and anyone who refused will not be considered part of the people of God. Now, all of the questions we might like to ask about this, two stand out 
and deserve special attention. First, why did God ask for this particular sign or mark for the covenant? Presumably, God could have asked for anything he wanted. Why pick circumcision? I think the answer goes something like this. Remember, this was still a very patriarchal society. Circumcision by nature touched the very core of what it meant to be a man. And in his most personal moments, each Jewish male would forever be reminded that he was a holy son of the covenant and he belonged to God. No one else might know, but he would never forget that. That leads to the second question, why did God choose a mark that applied only to men? And I think the answer is that God was reminding Abraham that he was head of his household. And as such, he had to answer, for God, answer to God for what happened in his family. And circumcision meant accepting your place as God's appointed spiritual leader in the home. It's like a father who gives away his daughter in a traditional wedding ceremony, stands and he speaks on behalf of the family. Now, in much the same way, Jewish men were saying to God, I accept the covenant that you have made with our people. In Joshua chapter 24, we have this idea expressed in a very similar fashion when Joshua exclaims, as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Now, just so Sarah won't feel left out, God gives some specific promises to her as well. He says her name is now going to be changed to Sarah, uh, which means princess. She will soon give birth to a son. Through that son, she will be the mother of many nations and great rulers will descend from her. See, this is an incredible demonstration of God's grace. The last time we saw Sarah, she was urging Abraham to sleep with her maidservant, Hagar, in order to try and help God out to provide a son for the family. And then she began mistreating Hagar when she became pregnant, and it's not a very pretty story. We talked a lot about that last week. And yet God includes her in the promise to Abraham. Though she is far from perfect and her faith a bit weak, she too will be included in God's plan. It's as if God said, don't worry, Sarah, I'm gonna bless you in spite of yourself. And that's often how God works. He blesses us in spite of ourselves. This is one of the great themes of Abraham's life story. Whatever God does, he does in spite of us, not because of us. If you've ever had the chance to read through the Gospel of Mark, one of the points that shines through very clearly in Mark's story is how dense the disciples were. You know, they can't figure out who Jesus is. They don't even understand the miracles that are happening around them. And when uh, Jesus tells, uh, tells them, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, they think he's talking about bread making. Several times Jesus just looks at them in utter exasperation and he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, he's, you guys are just a bunch of dunderheads. Don't you understand anything that I've told you? And the answer to that is no, they didn't understand much of it. And these are Jesus' hand-picked disciples. You know, when you read the story, you think that maybe you could have done a better job by throwing darts at a phone book and picking these 12. But, you know, these were the men Jesus chose. And since he's God and we're not, we trust that Jesus saw something in them that we don't. These were the men who would change the world. And we're here today because of those unlikely followers. And again, here's the principle we need to remember. Whatever God does, God does in spite of us, not necessarily because of us. 
It's interesting and instructive to see how Abraham responded to God's incredible promise. The Bible says he laughed. In fact, he fell down on the ground either in total shock or because he was laughing so hard. He didn't believe it. And he said to himself, how can I become a father at the age of 100? And how can Sarah have a baby when she's 90 years old? Both good questions. Generally speaking, the answer is it's not possible. And I can tell you for an absolute fact that it's only happened once in human history, and that took place 4,000 years ago. So Abraham is on good grounds to doubt God, at least from a statistical point of view. And that's why he brings up, again, his son Ishmael. And I think he's worried that maybe God's gotten himself in over his head. After all, it's been 24 years since Ishmael was born. God responds with four statements. I'm going to give you a son, and you're going to call him Isaac. He will be the son that I promised you. I will bless Ishmael and make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac. And then God adds one more important sentence. He says, Isaac will be born to you and Sarah about this time next year. Now, that's a very specific promise. After 24 years of waiting, God has pinned it down to the next 12 months. Abraham will celebrate his 100th birthday by painting the nursery and changing diapers. Now, I find this whole story tremendously comforting because it drives home the point that God is never early, he's never late, he's always right on time. And as I thought about this, I was reminded of that famous line from the old television program, Candid Camera, remember? Somewhere, sometime when you least expect it, someone will say, smile, you're on Candid Camera. See, God often seems to work on that principle. When we least expect it, often when we've given up all hope, God comes through in the nick of time. Well, our story contains one final detail. After God finished speaking and he left him, Abraham was circumcised. Verse 23 specifies that it happened on that very day. This is called instant obedience. And then he had Ishmael and all the other men in his household circumcised, and that was called complete obedience. It was Abraham's way of saying, Lord, I believe every word you say is true. And I'm going to believe it even if I don't understand it. And here's the proof of Abraham's faith. A few minutes ago, he had been laughing, rolling on the ground in disbelief. And now he is circumcised to seal his dedication to God and God's word. For you see, doubting is not a sin. Sometimes we think it is if we have doubts. Doubting is not a sin as long as our doubts don't keep us from obeying God. Now, you wonder, may wonder what all this means for us today. So let me give you a couple of uh, points of application. First, because God's name is El Shaddai, he is able, still able, to move mountains for his people. You know, that's why Jesus said to his disciples that through faith in God, they could move mountains. He tells them that in Mark's gospel. And I ran across this definition of faith recently that I really like. Faith is telling the mountain to move and then being surprised only when it doesn't. Isn't that great? Faith is telling the mountain to move and being surprised only when it doesn't. So don't despair if you're facing some mountain in your own life today. Remember the words of J. Hudson Taylor, there are three phases 
in the great work of God impossible, difficult, and done. You may be in that impossible stage this morning. And if so, don't give up because God is El Shaddai. Nothing is impossible with him. Secondly, God's call to you and to me will sometimes require acts of obedience that may seem strange to us at the time. I'm sure Abraham may have wondered about all of this because God didn't explain it all to him. Let me give you a sentence to chew on. If God is in charge, we can do the difficult things because it is God who will do the impossible. So don't be afraid to step out in faith and take a risk. And then third, we all need to have a circumcised heart. See, things have changed for us who live in the modern era. In the New Testament, we read that there's a different meaning to the word circumcision. It, it talks about a circumcision of the heart. That's why in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, it clearly teaches, for you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law, rather it is a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. I want you to note that circumcision, although it was a physical mark on the body, was never meant to be an end in itself. The physical mark was to be accompanied by a very deep spiritual commitment to God. And where if that commitment was absent, circumcision soon uh, degenerated into, into ritualism. And that's roughly what happened over the centuries in the Jewish nation. By the first century, many of the rabbis were speaking about circumcision as if it were an automatic ticket to heaven. And in many circles, it has become the supreme symbol uh, of Jewish superiority. A man need, need only to be circumcised to ensure his place in heaven. Although some may find this entire discussion academic, it has incredible relevant application to modern American churches and church members. You see, in our culture, um, some people regard baptism in, in the same way that the Jews regarded circumcision. Some churches teach that baptism saves us from sin. It guarantees an entrance into heaven. Some more fundamentalist pastors condemn the practice of infant baptism, saying it tends to be a religious ritual that leads people away from saving faith in Jesus Christ, even though that's not true. In our baptism ritual, we pray for the grace of God that makes a person a member of God's family. But we also still affirm that it needs to lead to a, to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ to an affirmation that we have been claimed as one of God's children. So let's be clear, all religious rituals are worthless unless something already has happened in our heart. Whether it's baptism or the Lord's Supper or church membership or tithing or praying the Lord's Prayer or anything else, none of those things save us. Only Jesus does that when we commit our life to him, we ask him to come in and change our heart. You see, rituals are not altogether bad, but to whatever extent we base our hope of eternal life on any of those things, we're making the same mistake that Jews made 2,000 years ago. So re to return to the larger point, circumcision originally was supposed to mean, I am dedicated to God. Where a person was truly dedicated, it had legitimate meaning. 
Where they weren't, it became a ritual without reality. The same can be true of almost any rituals or traditions in the church today. Unfortunately, millions of people today have a religion based on superstition. They put their trust in some outward ritual as their hope of salvation. Some, someday those folks are going to be sadly disappointed. Others of us may be trusting in an inherited religion. You know, my dad was the church treasurer. My mother was a Sunday school teacher. They act as if salvation is inherited like we inherit the color of our eyes. But it doesn't work that way when it comes to salvation. No one else can believe for us. We have to believe for ourselves if we want to go to heaven. I want to uh, close with a great story. It, it really comes out of one of the sermons of one of the very early Methodist preachers by the name of George Whitfield. And he tells the story of a strange and terrifying dream one night in which the angel, an angel comes and transports him to the gates of hell. And when he arrives there, he calls out to the gatekeeper. He says, have you any Methodists in hell? Oh, yes, we have plenty of Methodists down here. How about Lutherans? Yes, plenty of Lutherans too. What about Catholics? This place is filled with Catholics. Have you any Baptists in hell? More than we can count was the response. How about Presbyterians? By the hundreds. And with that, Whitfield says in his dream, uh, he sadly left this place of torment. And suddenly he finds that the angel transports him to the gates of heaven where he meets St. Peter. And again, he asks St. Peter, have you any Methodists in heaven? No Methodists up here. Have you any Catholics in heaven? Sorry to say, but no Catholics have ever come this way. What about Presbyterians? No Presbyterians either. What about Baptists? Not a one in all these years. Any Lutherans? We have no one that answers to that name. So finally, in desperation, Whitfield cries out, who do you have in heaven then? And St. Peter answers back, Christ followers. We have only Christ followers. Suppose I were to ask you the question this morning, are you a believer? What would your answer be? Hey, I'm a member of Redeemer Church. That's not what I ask. Suppose I ask, have you committed your life to Jesus Christ? What would you say? Hey, I've been baptized. I even went through confirmation class. It's not what I asked. Suppose I asked, do you know that your sins are forgiven? What would you say? Hey, I was born a Methodist. I'm going to die a Methodist. It's not what I asked. Suppose I asked, are you a Christ follower? What would you say? Of course I'm a Christian. After all, I was born in America. I've gone to church since I was a baby. It's not what I asked. See, it all boils down to this. What are we trusting in for our eternal salvation? Or more accurately, in whom are we trusting to take us to heaven? You know, salvation is not a what, it's a who. The issue is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me give you two simple words, only Jesus. Only Jesus can forgive sins. And only Jesus can give us the gift of eternal life. Have you put your trust in him? That's the question. Let's pray. 
Gracious, loving God, thank you for your word to us through Abraham's life story. Forgive our sins and help us to put our faith and our trust in you as the one who grants us life eternal. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.